my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Studio 22. Welcome to Studio 22. My name is Will Meldman. I'm here with my co-host, Brock O'Hearn. We are in a very special place today. And as you might be able to tell, for those watching, came right off the golf course, right here. I'm a little nervous on this one. We have my father, Mike Meldman, founder and CEO of Discovery Land Company and co-founder of Casamigos Tequila. And I love you. Here you are. Let's go. I love you too. <laughs> Thanks awesome. for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Mike, man. We've uh, been looking forward to this since day one uh, of starting the podcast. So it's a pleasure. Well, I'm honored to be here and I'm proud nice. of both of you. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. Been, yeah. been working hard. This is like, I don't know the number. Spencer, what number are we on? 64. 64. All right. All right. That's great. Yeah. A year in. Officially yeah. signed with iHeart and congrats. Which we can talk about now. Yeah. 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 It's liberating. <laughs> it's, it's definitely been a, a, a few months in the process, getting everything worked out and it's smooth sailing now. So. We got some great producers over at iHeart that are helping out. Um, we are at the Madison Club in La Quinta, California. Um, how, how long has it been? When did Madison Club open? Because my partner in this tournament for the golf is Tommy Armour, who I refer to as Sensei because he's the best golf teacher in the world outside of Matt Killen. When was Madison Club founded? Because me and Tommy played in the very first member guest tournament here. Ooh, I don't know the exact date, but it's probably ooh, 2005. We were struggling trying to figure out the exact date too, because it was so long ago. But it, it yeah, feels it's hard like to yesterday. remember because we did the hideaway first. And that was probably 
2000, 2000 late 1990s. <clears throat> and then we had excess land. And Mad Hideaway was a huge success, and it's a two courses, 600 units, and we sold it out in 18 months. So we had this 500 acres left, and we were trying to sell it. And I said, well, why sell it? Because we're always looking to buy land. Why don't we do a more exclusive hideaway? And so the idea for Madison came up that Shadow Creek, which is a Tom Fazio course in, in Vegas. Las Vegas that he did for Steve Wynn, was just being redone because it's 18 years old. And I'm going, Shadow Creek's 18 years old? Well, Tom's a lot better designer now than he was 18 years ago, which is now 36 years ago. And we're a better developer than we were, you know, when we started. So I said, why don't we build a Shadow Creek on steroids? And so that's how the idea of Madison came out. So, you know, we took the concept of Shadow Creek where we moved here 5 million cubic yards of dirt. We created a whole new environment as you can tell yeah. when you see it, because this was the flattest, ugliest piece of desert you've ever seen. And we've turned it into a lush oasis. And that's the key to like the development process, right? Like I know we're going to step back a little bit and like talk about discovery and the genesis behind it. But this place was literally just a flat desert lot that you turned, that you dug all the dirt out and created a beautiful course in the middle of the desert. Yeah, we have a we made a movie on it called The Making of Madison because I didn't like now 18 20 years later however long it was when you come out and look with all the beautiful houses and the lush landscaping no one understands what it took, you know, not only to develop it yeah. and build it but the vision, you know, to create it. And so we made a movie out of it which is Kind of like a mini documentary on how to build a golf course. I love that movie. It's great. That's awesome. What was it about golf courses that uh, you gravitated towards when it came to the Discovery Land properties? I came up the real estate ladder as I started as a broker. I was literally selling or trying to sell Hustle Dirt in Fremont, California. My office was in San Jose. And the guy I worked for when I started basically put me in Fremont, said, here's the microfiche, find out who owns the land and put a sign up on the land. And I said, okay. And so that was literally my real estate training. That was wow. the only <laughs> advice I got. So fortunately for me, Fremont happened to be a growth area for Silicon Valley at the time hmm. where all the developers, it kind of winded its way around the Bay Area and was going back to Fremont, to Fremont in Newark, which was directly east of Palo Alto, where I live. So it was easy for me to get back and forth, And even though my office was in San Jose. So I went and got signs up everywhere, and people started calling, you know, wanting to buy something or lease something. And I remember, like, I would lease a residential house that was zoned commercial, to a termite company. And so the, I'm negotiating the lease with the guy who owns the termite company, and he's going through it with me, and he goes, what's estoppel? And I go, hold on. And I <laughs> call, yeah, I, before Google. It was before Google. I had <laughs> yeah. to go to a phone, 
called my manager and I, and I said to him, hey, what's the stopple? He explained it to me. I would then explain it to the termite company. He signed the lease. I got in my car, left, and I'm still going, I still don't know what a stopple is. <laughs> <laughs> but it taught me how to make deals. Yeah. In my first year in the business, I probably made about 68, 70 deals, which is a lot yeah. you know, for a guy who never made a deal before. So I had a knack for making deals. And the funny thing is a lot of my commissions were $62.50 because no. the minimum commission was $250 in the, in the commission agreements. And so sometimes or a lot of times I'd have to split it with another broker. So that broker got $125. I'd get $125 and I'd have to split my half with my comp- the company I worked for. Wow. So I got a lot of huh. checks for $62.50. That's wild. Lucky number. Yeah. <laughs> so before that, you were at Stanford. You dealt blackjack. You bagged groceries. You worked at an oil rig, correct? Correct. So Take us there. Okay. So my first job, I call it a courtesy clerk instead of bagging groceries. I apologize. I'm trying to be <laughs> culturally sensitive. So... I started working at Lucky's, which was in Phoenix, which is um, across the street from my house, like a two-block walk. And so I worked four four days a week, and that was the money I made to buy a bike or go out on a date or do anything. Because, you know, I grew up very, you know, in a great family, very happy family, but very, you know, middle class, even though I thought we were rich. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I had to work for everything I ever did, so, which was great because it gave me, obviously, a great work ethic and appreciation for work and for money, and I, you know, wanted to make money. So I worked as a courtesy clerk, and then when I went to Stanford, I worked as a stock boy at Lucky's, which is where I started in Phoenix, and by the time I was doing that, I was making real money, like, $18 an hour, which mm. back then was a ton. Yeah. Um, and then the next summer, instead of doing that, I lugged beef at Arizona Beef. I literally would go to the slaughterhouse. The cows would come in. They would... Oh, no. <laughs> and then I was a guy who they would be hanging on the, the rack or the, the, racks, yeah, you yeah. Know, the hook. And I'd go like this, and I'd swing... Like Rocky. The bot, like Rocky, except for I wouldn't punch him. I <laughs> put it on my back and lugged it over to the, the truck, threw it up there, and then Jeez. we'd go deliver it to store, grocery stores. And then I'd bring the half the you know, cattle into the grocery store. I mean, hey, if you're out there listening and you've ever eaten beef, I mean, that's how it happens. <laughs> but it, was a, it paid a lot. So I... Had all these jobs that made a lot of money for you know kid my age at that time, and then the next summer, I worked with a buddy of mine on an oil rig as a roustabout. So that's like, yeah, was that the lowest man on the totem pole in the <laughs> just where you want to be? <laughs> yeah, in the on the on the oil rig. It was a ship oh. with a drill in the middle of it, and so we would be just running around doing what 
anyone asked us to do. And basically what we did mostly was the, there was a crane operator who carried pipes and, you know, drilled the holes and took supplies off. And we basically had to primarily hook whatever they were moving onto the, the crane. It was dangerous. And yeah. I remember... Like Armageddon? The movie? Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't see it. You so know, they like work on an oil rig in yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, okay, okay. And so <laughs> I remember having to go into my, basically my mom, and show her how much every limb was worth. Because if I lost a finger, oh, a hand, <laughs> an arm, how much they were going to pay me. For insurance? Yeah. Oh, wow. It, or I guess it's probably for liabilities, for exposure. Yeah. So they made us sign something what? which basically valued... <laughs> Different limbs, and thank do you, God. Do you think it equated to the value of a limb? I don't know. They all sound like a lot of money to me. Yeah. So I was, was going to lose an arm. Yeah, seven hundred for your thumb. <laughs> oh, man, that's so wild. So I had always worked hard, always had, you know, jobs that actually made a lot of money, you know, for me. I remember going into my senior in college and had like $3,000 in the bank, which was huge, you know, for 19 80, yeah. 81. That's incredible. I was able to buy a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There it is. Cosmigos didn't exist yet, so. Yeah. The Coors Light train. So then you went from those jobs to college and then straight out of college into real estate. And then. Yeah, I was going, my parents put me through Stanford, which was a, a stretch for them. I mean, it mm. was a lot of money at the time. I think tuition was 6000 a year. I can't imagine wow. what it is now, but you know that's eighteen thousand, yeah, a year because it was on semesters, and so there was a lot of money. And the whole reason they put me through Stanford was for me to go to law school because I always wanted to be a lawyer. And Grandpa went to Marquette Law, right? Yeah. My dad went to Marquette Law, and my grandfather went to Marquette Law, and his brother went to Marquette Law and wow. his other brother went to Marquette Medical School. <laughs> so I was kind of destined to be a lawyer and go to Marquette. And probably the best thing that ever happened to me was that I bombed the LSATs. Wow. I, I love mean, that. I, I don't know how low my score was, but you know, I, I got my name right and that was probably <laughs> the only thing. I mean, we literally just had Robbie Master on. I think, you know, passed him right after D1 baseball, but I'm, you know, everything happens for a reason, right? And it's like, you just take whatever job at the time, work your ass off, and the universe will, will find a way. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Do you think having a, a fa family who was lawyers uh, served you at all in what you were doing, like at least having at least a little bit of knowledge in this space? Well, With, if it did, it didn't help me. Oh, no, <laughs> it didn't not help then. me very yeah. much. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, like, my dad went to law school, but he never practiced. He, oh, okay. So I always thought law, and back then, law might have been a better general education than, like, a business uh, MBA was. Um, or maybe I just thought that because everyone I knew in my family were lawyers. But um, my dad never practiced. He just got the degree as a way to learn and, and think. And he, he ended up selling life insurance. I mean, law is like, like legal contracts, documents. It's like the language of business, right? So it's like, if you know it, then you can pretty much navigate your way through whatever you're doing. So that yeah. makes sense. I mean, I feel like you guys are putting up new properties left and right all the time. Uh, every time I talk to Will and it's really exciting. Uh, how many properties are you guys at right now? Ooh, I think we're at about 35 properties. Awesome. With Discovery Land Company founded 94? 94. 94. Nice. Do you have a favorite property or one that kind of you gravitate towards the most? Yeah, everybody always asks me that. Yeah, yeah. I can it's, imagine. It's hard. It's like saying, yeah. who's your favorite child? And I always say, Will. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it that, depends that, on that question comes next, but you already answered yeah. it. There. Love yeah. the one you're with, right? Exactly. 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 So, no, it's hard. So I, I tell everyone, like, the top four are Cuquillo, El Dorado, Baker's Bay, and Yellowstone. And they were all kind of in the original, say, original tranche, everything before 08. And if I had to pick a number one, I always say Cuquillo. And it's only because Cuquillo really made the brand because what was there, you know, from the beginning, it was just mm. an ugly piece of lava that we turned into a oasis. Mm. I mean, it looks like right out of a Hawaiian movie set. And the people who bought there were all like captains of industry. You know, it was probably half of the Forbes, you know, 100. And I was, you know, I had a, you know, four or five deals under my belt, but not the brand that 
we have today. And so these guys all like interviewed me. So I had to like go to their offices and explain the vision or, you know, what we were going to do. And they, they bought it. And I mean, I never ever didn't think we wouldn't do it. And I never wavered and I was, you know, I had it in my head and it came out exactly how it was in my head, but they really, they, you know, had faith in me and believed in me when they really shouldn't have. Because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now it's easy, right? I mean, we can go to Dubai like we are, and everyone knows what they're going to get and what to expect, and we know we're going to deliver it. And with Kukio, I was really the only one who knew. Right. And everyone else took a big leap of faith, and the people who took the big leap of faith, you know, were serious people who really diligence thing. So yeah, if they're going to invest in a big home and spend time, they want to make sure the guy in charge is, has a clear vision, knows what he's doing all that. I mean, that makes sense. Right. But I didn't have the track record right. back then. So it was a leap of faith for them to actually have faith in me, which, which is why I'm so proud of it because, you know, I, executed properly it probably exceeded everyone's expectation and you know it's one of the great places you know great developments ever some of our best memories of all life are there i mean absolutely um you know learning how to surf right there with t-bear and rob machado and you know oh my gosh so Let's give like, how would you define Discovery Land Company? Like for the audience, if we said, it's not just like a real estate company, like how would you define what is Discovery Land Company? Well, I'd say it's a recreational resort lifestyle community. It's hard to define it in one word because, you know, it's it's kind of funny, everyone goes, so what are you? You're in the golf business. You're in the health and wellness business. You're in the development business. You're in the operating business. Um, you know, they basically say everything except for we're in the real estate <laughs> sales business. <laughs> right. And that's actually what we do. And so we, it all started, as you know, with Estancia, my, my first project. In Scottsdale, in Arizona. Sc- in Scottsdale. And so when I started it, I had to convince everyone of every, you know, everything that was that was going going on, and I didn't golf, which didn't help. I was never a member <laughs> of a country club. I grew up in Milwaukee, and I'm building the most the highest end golf course community or country club in Arizona, which was full of high end country clubs, and so there are a couple things that I figured out with the help of Mark Sullenberger, who you probably remember, who kind of spoon fed me a lot because he represented a couple other projects that did well, but ended up having some, some faults. And so what I tried to do was create a community that was exclusive, secure and sustainable. And even in 94, I was um, developing it, th- developing through the environment. And I learned that through 
an 18 year process in Portola Valley where it took 18 years to get 30, 28 lots on 300 acres. And it took so long because every environmental constraint you could think of was on this property. The San Andreas Fault ran through it. You know, there's wildlife corridors, there's, you know, botany corridors, there's landslides. So everything you can think of, wetlands, was on this property, wildland fires. And so I had to navigate through the environment. And in California and everywhere, you do these environmental impact studies. And so the people who were fighting me were all Stanford professors, because this property happened to be in Portola Valley. Yep. So the town geologic commission happened to have like the guys who started USGS and, you know, the people fighting me on the botany and biology were biology professors at Stanford. So it taught me how to develop through the environment, which is actually the way you want to develop, which is where Estancia became the product of. So Estancia, when I first looked at it, they pitched me to do like a Phoenician which is a like big resort, convention resort in Phoenix, right up, up against Camelback Mountain. And I'm going, well, why would we do the Phoenician? It's bankrupt, and the developer was just thrown in prison. <laughs> so Perfect model. Yeah, I go, so that doesn't sound like the, the trend I, I want to go with. So they had a density credit for the resort units to 800 units. So we could get rid of the 3,000 hotel units and do 800 single-family homes. So we hired Tom Fazio for the golf course, which was one of the great moves that has, you know, I still... I mean, you guys have worked together so much. And yeah. Yeah, he's such a legend. Yeah, it still goes on today. And we laid out the lots where it didn't where you didn't need to masquerade the site, where you kind of, you put the roads in the natural contours of the land. And by doing that, you save money on grading, you save money on landscaping, because you would, you would de-veg everything and then re-veg it. So you, mm. it was very environmental friendly and sustainable. And this is kind of right at the beginning of all that. And fortunately, I grew, you know, I started in, Portola Valley in Palo Alto, California. So it was, I was able to learn how to do that. So with Estancia, we ended up, instead of 800 units, I think it was like 245 units. Everything kind of blended into the natural setting and environment. And, you know, it stood the test of time. It's still probably the best subdivision or community in Arizona to this, you know, to this day, first development that ever had million dollar lots. In Arizona? In Arizona. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I love the idea too of not fighting the environment. You do it like the roads with the contours of the land, right? Like you just make it more integrated with what's actually there, right? Well, yeah. it makes sense because yeah. if yeah. you, if you plow over the dirt, like most de developers do, it's just cost money. Right, you you got grading money, you got landscape money. Like the landscape budget here twenty years ago was eighteen million dollars. So if you, and today it would probably be two to three times that. So oh, wow. if, if you don't have to spend that money, if you could actually navigate through the contours and in Arizona, it's really easy because all the cactus and 
the trees out there are very short mm. roots, tap roots. So you could easily box them, dig them up, box them, and move them. And so, you know, by the time yeah. we developed the site, it looked like everything was just laid in there, you know, from on top. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's incredible. What What is uh, the future of Discovery Land look like? Well, we're expanding all around the world now. So um, we're in Europe. We have a project that's one of my new favorites called Costa Terra. It's in Portugal, about an hour, 15 minutes south of Lisbon on the Atlantic Ocean. It's on a bluff overlooking the water, great surf breaks everywhere, kite surfing. Just It's just a, a great you know, property overlooking the water. Very central in Europe too, right? You can yeah. kind of get anywhere from yeah, Portugal. Yeah, two hours from anywhere. And there's always a nice breeze on the golf course, mm. even when it's, you know, Europe gets hot in the summer, but this little corridor stays kind of air-conditioned from the, cool. the ocean. So we're going to Europe. We have a, bought a castle in Scotland called Tamith, which is, a super cool place awesome. that we're in the process of remodeling and redoing the golf. And there's a hunting lodge with it and like 7,000 acres for deer stalking and grouse hunting and pheasant think, hunting. Yeah. I think we need to like get Brock to a castle and film something. <laughs> <laughs> something about Brock in a yeah. castle in a costume or something. We got to figure that out. Yeah. Now, that's always been a, a dream of mine is to own a castle one day. Yeah, so So, this is a very cool castle. Yeah, and now we're in the Middle East as well. Oh, cool! So Dubai in Dubai. So the reason I like these new areas is that we're one of one. Mm. Like here at Madison, you know, we're one of a hundred, maybe two hundred golf course communities in the Palm Springs and Coachella Valley. Now we happen to be the number, you know, our highest price one in it. So. Wherever we go. And right next to Coachella than in Stagecoach, right? Like we're we actually literally right. You walk across the street and you're at Coachella or Stagecoach. Yeah. Which at first we thought was a problem just because of the traffic and everything, but it ended up being a huge asset for us because everyone loves being here and yep. just walk just walks over. So um we, you know, being one of one like we are in Dubai and we are in Europe, you get a lot more, you get higher prices. So there's mm-hmm. a lot more elasticity in the pricing. Where here, we we have pretty good elasticity just because as this has developed and sold, there are fewer lots and fewer houses to buy. So scarcity, you know, obviously mm-hmm. drives prices up. But when you're in Europe and we're, the, we're one-on-one and once people understand what the vision is and what the place is, we get higher prices. And... Like we've gone to areas where we've literally, like in Bahamas, changed the GNP for the you know for the country for the amount of money that not only gets invested but you know the everything that's purchased, you know through the project for construction or boating and well, things like that. The yeah. Taxes on like a hundred million dollar home and on the island, right? I mean yeah. that the government's getting a lot of yeah. Kukio, I think, is the highest tax base in all of Hawaii. Oh, wow. And then Bahamas, you have to hire locals too as well, right? Yeah. For a majority of the stuff. Yeah. That's I love it we, in Bahamas. I think in the yeah. Abacos, we probably have 
5% of the whole population works for us. Wow. wow. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. H- how many employees would you say? I mean, I know it kind of differs project to project, like, but through all of discovery, how many people, even like independent contractors, if you're trying to count like everything, how many jobs has discovery provided? Well, Baker is probably the easiest one because we do all the or do most of the building, and we normally say just on the construction side have twelve hundred to fifteen hundred people, and then on the operational side there's probably five hundred, so two thousand, two thousand a project, kind of. Yeah, I mean, Yellowstone's probably double that. I mean, it's so large. Yellowstone may have just a thousand ski instructors, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. So it's become a obviously not only a big business but a big yeah. um, employment base for you know and yeah. we're in a lot of rural areas that need the economic stimulation so it's you know fun and rewarding to see you know what happens to our employees and see them mm. you know buy new homes and you know things like that. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of that, right? Like affecting the community. I'll let you get a question in after. No, I'm yeah. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> it's thing, so man. natural, just bringing stuff up. Um, the Discovery Land Company Foundation, right? I mean, there's been um, a children's hospital in Cabo, uh, the Boys and Girls Club in Idaho. I know you know you guys work with a lot. How has the foundation kind of affected the company, and and what was the genesis behind that? Well. The foundation, I think, has been a big additive to it because everybody, like who buys in our communities, are you know have a great life and they like they like to give back. Everywhere we go, we have events and raise money for local charities. And we got your mother to shout out, mom, <laughs> to um, run it and Hunter. Your, Shout out, Hunter. Your, your, bro- your, your brother. Um, they run it, or, and Hunter advises. And we started doing basically investing into existing foster facilities. With existing infrastructure to handle operations instead of just starting from right. scratch. That makes sense. And they, didn't, they just didn't have the money. They just lacked the capital. So we supplied that. That's great, too, that members are so involved in that. And again, like every single year we play in the Madison Club Foundation event hosted here. One of the best events ever. And, you know, so many pro golfers come and support and all the members support so much that it's it's really cool to see. Yeah, it's a great day of golf and people love it. And, you know, the pros come, which is nice. You know, they love being here and they love meeting, you know, the people you know, who come and play in it. So it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great day of golf and obviously for a good cause. And how often are you hosting those? Well, we do this once a year and then we try to, now that we have more clubs around the country, we try to do them where the tour has events because the pros are very generous with their time and always come. So we try to do two or three a year. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ben Crane was an early partner in the foundation. Yeah, Ben started, started the idea with me. And he, we had him on in Nashville one of my favorite humans of all time, as you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a no, great. We love, we love Ben. Yeah. Really solid guy. That's one thing that I found about Discovery uh, coming through is that the community of people in here are such good people, not just talented and successful in their own right, but it brings together uh, so many great people from different walks of life. And um, I've noticed too that a lot of people that are members of Discovery usually, at least I, from what I've seen, become members at different properties because of how much they love what you guys have built. Yeah, we probably have over 30% of our buyers are multiple buyers mm. because once, once let's say you're, you're here at Madison, so this would be your winter place. Well, where do you go in the summer? Because it's hot here. Mm. So, you know, they go to Hawaii or they go to Montana or they go to Idaho or, or they go to upstate New York. So we found that seasonality, you know, has helped, you know, move the mm. communities and population around and once you start you know you have your house let's say in one of our communities it's hard to go to a hotel yeah. or a, a great resort because let's say you want to go christmas to hualai which is kukiel's right next to hualai which is the four, the four seasons, seasons in the, on the big island in yeah, kona in kona well you got to be really organized because you know if you don't have your room, you probably you know for years you probably don't get your room. Mm. But let's just say you're a, a high a high profile person like most of the members are here. Well, they want a specific room, and you know you could only go with your family on certain times, which right. happens to be when the whole world is going Christmas and, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, Big Christmas, ski week, Easter, Thanksgiving. So it's it's complicated. And it's frustrating because you have to really prepare in advance. And no matter who you are, sometimes you just can't pull it off. These so, are really busy people too, right? Like they're Yeah, because everyone is trying to get 
the same room or, right. you know, <laughs> a suite or, you know, something. And so it's, it's difficult. So once you have a place like here or El Dorado, you're not worrying about that because you know you have your house. And so it takes a lot of pressure off, you know, off people. Yeah. Um, your hat is Casamigos. <laughs> and I know it's pink as well, obviously, but Will's told, Will <laughs> told me multiple times, Max uh, uh, kind of brought the pink attire into your guys' family a bit. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> which, shout out to Max. We need yeah, to shout yeah, Max out. Yeah, little bro, little bro. Um, <laughs> but for everyone listening, is it true that Casamigos was founded on Discovery property? Yeah. So, yeah. so basically it started or the idea started at El Dorado because George and Randy had a compound there and their compound was called Casamigos. Mm. And then my house, it was in El Dorado, which is a discovery project. My house is five lots away. And so we all spent a lot of time together there and we were drinking, you know, when you're in Cabo, especially when we were younger, you drink a lot of tequila. And so we liked, you know, like Clause Azul, we liked 42, but we didn't love it. Like 42 got a little bitter, Clause Azul got a little sweet. So we go, let's come up with the, in our minds at least, the perfect tequila. So we started, you know, formulating it and we came up. I mean, Randy says it took about 400 samples and it probably did because Randy's very particular. George and I were probably happy with the first, first sample. <laughs> Go, yeah, this is great. Um, but we spent time, we got it right. And so we decided to do it. And, you know, we obviously, we've had Randy on before and we love that episode and we had such a good time with him. And it's really cool to get you on as well and get more perspectives on all this. What would you say for Casamigos, like how did you guys kind of split up the work between you, George, and Randy? Like how did that kind of, because it seemed like you guys just get along so well, you had a clear mission, you made a great product. Like what was kind of the secret sauce of that collaboration? Well, it's just that, and first of all, we we're like three best friends. So it's kind of fun to do this because, you know, everyone's life got busy. So it gave us a reason to hang out and do things. So obviously, you know, slapping a t-shirt on George did a lot, right? Cause you know, I remember George going, okay, if you're going to paparazzi, if you're going to follow me, take my picture, we should the Casamigo shirt on. Right? right. So George was obviously, you know, powerful that way. And I don't know if people realize it, but I mean, George, you know, everyone thinks George was just a celebrity endorser. He wasn't. George was a founder. He helped, create it. He helped, you know, figure out the formula and he helped the business side of it. I mean, cause George is obviously a smart, you know, smart guy. So I think for George, it was fun to be involved because it's just a different business mm -hmm. than, you know, than he's in. And then Randy obviously knew the liquor business better than anyone. Cause he was in the bar, in the bar business. And Randy, as you know, is very, particular and you know he was great with imaging and great with the position of what you know Casamigos branding and branding and how it could be in the the cool factor he's so, got such good style and taste yeah. it's crazy yeah so obviously 
those two both helped make it the cool, you know, the 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 cool the cool drink. And then I had the connections. But it was just, you know, we all had different talents. And so the three of us together just created a superpower. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, House of Friends in Casamigos, which is funny to me because that's actually how I met Will. I hadn't drank tequila in years because of some pretty gnarly hangovers beforehand from different alcohol, uh, different tequilas. And then our buddy Max Blank introduced us, and it was, I think, maybe the second Casamigos party that you guys had. It was the one with you and Ricky Fowler where yeah. he was your caddy and yeah. you were Ricky. Which is great. That was a good one. Um, but, I mean, that story is just through and through with the House of Friends and the conception of it and then it becoming a superpower and the success of it, too. It's It was the perfect storm, but I didn't drink tequila at all. And then I remember waking up the next day after drinking all night, having one of the best nights ever, uh, and I've had energy. I felt great. And it kind of changed my whole... No hangover. No hangover, man. Well, yeah. that's a great thing about Casamigos because everybody has that Jose Cuervo ghost story because <laughs> back in the day, that was the premium even before Patron. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember in college waking up in Arizona in 120 degree weather, my tongue basically burning on the the rocks that I passed out on. Oh, man. And I, I don't think I drank tequila till. Casamigos, or yeah. right, or till El Dorado, similar wow. to Rock. Yeah, it yeah. stays that that stays with you. The smell, Oof. the whole thing. But for whoever out there has had that problem, Casamigos solves it, hundred <laughs> percent. And and since I would say Casamigos for sure, I've seen in I can't even count how many tequila companies and and spirits that have come out in trying to follow and replicate that formula that you guys have created. And I don't. Nobody's done it, um, but it's uh, it's been really incredible to see that you guys really were the forefront of that, and it's still going strong today, really. Well, as they say, imitation is the greatest form of family. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. 100%. So uh, I wanted to get into, as an actor, speaking to a fellow <laughs> actor, <laughs> your career, man, um, in, in the acting space. Uh, you've done Kirby Enthusiasm, Entourage, uh, Battleship, uh, and a few others. Did you ever know that you were going to, or have any aspirations to be an actor in any way? No. No? None at all. Yeah. It was all for fun to, you know, hang out with my buddies who were yeah. doing the, you know, doing the movies. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you have, you have fun on set? Do you enjoy it? Or is it? I mean, it was fun just because yeah. I remember I was doing Battleship and I was up on this, on the Battleship and where everyone's up there and they were filming other areas and you know they made me sit there and it was hot it was in hawaii and i got up and i walked over to the producer and director chair the director was peter berg pete berg and stuber scott stuber was the producer and so they go in i sit down there and stuber looks at me and he goes you're supposed to be up there i go stuber the camera's not not even on me what are you doing keeping me up there? You got to treat me like I'm fucking George Clooney. <laughs> he goes, okay, okay. And so he let, you know, he let me stay there until they actually needed, needed me. Was that the most high maintenance extra of all time? Is that the... <laughs> no, that's what Bradley Thomas calls me. Because actually one of my good, my great cameos was in Hall Pass, which is, it's kind of the one, you know, I've been in a lot of the Fairly Brother movies and... um you know, Peter went out on his own and did Green Book and wins the Academy Award for Best Picture. Didn't get a cameo on that one. But, yeah. 
But I remember being like in Hall Pass and Bradley Thomas is one of my best friends. Is They're Fairley Brothers producing yeah. partners. And he always says I am the most highest maintenance guy, you know, cameo guy in the world. I'm yeah. like, Bradley, no, I'm not. Like, because I remember they put me in a scene and I was like in the second round, this big, huge guy's in front of me. I'm like, Bradley, don't, movie 101, put the shorter sure. guy in the front, the big yeah. back guy in the back. I go, and I'm like, you know, just kidding him, but like giving him a lot of shit about it. And he's like, That's you great. know, rolling his eyes and going, okay, this is the last cameo you get. What about Curb Your Enthusiasm? Well, that was an easy one. Yeah. Because it's um, improv. So they told me kind of what the scene was going to be. And they, you know, I went in, signed in like 10 o'clock and they put me in a trailer and they said, you're going to probably not go on to two o'clock. And I go, well, how about if I go in my office and I'll be back here at two? And they go, you promise? I go, yes. And they let me go to my office, which was literally two miles away. And so I got back there. We did the scene in 20 minutes and I left. There we go. Yeah. Amazing. Sounds Larry's got to figure it out. Larry's got to figure it out. And John Hamm was in the scene and John was actually, you know, um, he explained everything you know, that was happening, which helps because they don't really tell you what's going on, yeah. you know, in, in the other, other scenes. So right. that, that actually helped. And then um, the director just came back from Larry's house at Chileno. So he was being real nice and helpful. So it literally was a 20 minutes. Um, they cut what I thought was my best line. But other than that, it was What's fun. the uncut line? Uh, what was it? It's like, I, I think I, I think my normal line was, you know, you got to, they didn't want you to to browse. The magazine. The magazine. Is that a magazine yeah, stand? Yeah. Is that a magazine stand? And they want you to buy, not browse. I go, well, you got to browse to buy. And Larry was like giving me shit. I go, look, if you go buy a car, do you drive it first? And he goes, yeah. yeah. I go, well, you got to browse to buy. And they yeah. cut the car, the car line out, which I thought I obviously improvised it. And I thought it was great, but obviously they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it took, still it, made it. Took away his shine a little too yeah. much. Yeah. And Larry did say, oh, we had to cut that, but he was nice about it. How was John Hamm? He was cool. Yeah, he's great. And now, you know, you worked in films, and, and I know Will's had a passion for it since he was young, and he started now Double Down Pictures as a producer and has multiple projects out there right now. How is that seeing your son uh, chase his dreams, his passions? Oh, it's been great to, great to watch because he's, um, he's pretty much been passionate about it his whole life. He's remember starting working on actually Ocean's Eleven. With 13. Jer or thir 13. 13, with yeah. Jerry Weintraub. And I remember him getting up at 6 a.m., beating Jerry to the set. And a lot of my friends worked on, you know, worked on the movie. Mm. And I remember Will coming home goes, what's your nice friend's name again and your mean friend? <laughs> to George? <laughs> no, not, to not about George. I think it was Benny and Waldo. No, yeah, George is, <laughs> Waldo was always giving me shit. And yeah, Benny, and was, Benny always, was always They nice. were both nice, obviously. I know, but I know. That was great. Joke. So, yeah, let's dive into that. That's a good, uh, that's a good little transition. So we have Craig Susser, who was at Dantana's, and then this all ties together for the listeners. So, 
Tommy Armour, who we're about to have on, he took you to Dantana's where you met Craig and then eventually Jerry Weintraub as well. How did like, cause I was in high school at this time. I, I must've been like, you know, I was in high school. So like, how did you kind of meet everyone in LA and get introduced to everybody and how did that work? Okay. So it all started with the hideaway, which is next door here. And the hideaway we bought or partnered up with Nationwide Insurance because they were doing this deal with these other developers. And the other developers, it was called the Country Club of the Desert. And they wanted to make it the place in the, in the desert, like get all the members from all the other clubs and turn it into the super club. So they started it. They had nine holes of one course and nine holes of the other course. And Pete Dye. It was a Pete, Pete Dye and a Clive Clark. Clive Clark. And so they had 18 holes and they were starting the clubhouse and had a few homes going. And then the developers stole some money. Mm. So they got kicked out. Nationwide was going to sell it. We convinced them they'd make more money if they stayed in. And we did this business plan for them. So they agreed to do it. We tore down the houses. We had to redo the clubhouse. We changed it from Country Club of the Desert to the Hideaway. And I remember Nationwide didn't quite like the hideaway because they thought it was like hideaway from the money the guy stole. (laughs) And I was like, well, the other name we're thinking was Swindler's Cove. (laughs) 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 So they they said, okay, hideaway's hideaway's (laughs) fine. So again, we did that, 600 homes, sold it all out in 18 months. And that's where I met Jerry. Because Jerry, when when the hideaway or Country Club of the Desert went on the market, Jerry went to all his friends who developed all the other places around here and said, hey, let's buy the Country Club of the Desert. And all his friends who were in the know and who actually did stuff around here, you know, build big project, golf communities, said it will never work. And they said it wouldn't work because you need all the clubs here, like the Vintage and Bighorn and Quarry, who are all the guys Jerry talked to, were in the coves of the mountains here. And we're kind of in the flatland looking into the mount, into the mountains. And so everyone thought that was bad. And I go, well, it's, to me it was good because you had the views of the mountain. And in January and February, when the mornings and evenings get cold, it was warmer, you know, because mm-hmm. you had like an hour more sun because you didn't have the mountains blocking the sun. Mm-hmm. So I came in, did it made it a huge success. So Jerry's like, who is this guy? You know, who did this? So he kind of, you know, sought me out. Based off a unique development decision that you had made with Highway. And where all his friends were telling him, you know, this guy's crazy, it's never going to (laughs) work. Which basically happens in every project I do. But um, (laughs) So that's how I met Jerry. And so Jerry kind of had a knack for finding, you know, had a knack for finding talent, right? Obviously, you know, with Elvis and with Frank Sinatra and with all the movies he did. And so he just looked at me that way, even though it was a real estate guy instead of talent. So he just kind of embraced me and, you know, we became best friends. He became a mentor and that's how I got introduced to George and Randy and that that whole crew through 
you know, Jerry in the Oceans movies. It's another movie. I had three or four cameos in Oceans. Awesome. Oceans yeah. 13. <laughs> I love this. I mean, I'm like, I'm learning a ton. It's like surprisingly. Yeah. This is great. Um, I'm just wondering when you're going to put your dad in one of your films. Oh, well, I got to make another one first. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. I'm actually. I was too, too afraid to be in the resort. It's scary. It's, <laughs> it's a, a scary, scary movie. I don't, scary. Not, well, yeah. don't like the scary movies so much. Didn't, I might have another scary one coming though. So yeah, we'll get you in that. It didn't end well for me in that one either. So NFL Total Access, the podcast is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Probably better you stay away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did those epic fishing trips. Like, if I brought it back out to like a macro level, we'd like take the horses through the Bob Marshall wilderness in Montana, me, you, and Hunter with guides, go fishing. I mean, those were like epic camping trips. We got to do that again. Well, that was part of like the whole secret sauce of discovery. So the first two projects, Estancia and Cordoval, were golf-centric. And I didn't golf, right? So... Well, most I, improved golfer of all time. Yeah, well, I say best swing money can buy. Right. <laughs> so um, we would... I didn't like to golf. I didn't golf. I, I literally didn't like it because I, I like to work out, right? And mm. golf wasn't a workout. And now I love to golf because... My workout's walking a lot. Yeah. So I walk 18 holes and it's great. So that's how, when I started liking golf, but back then I didn't like golf at all. So we were doing this project in Montana. So I go, well, what do we do? Well, Montana is like a recreational heaven. Yeah. And so up at, this is in Whitefish, Montana. 
So, you know, I bought a boat to teach them how to wakeboard. Mm-hmm. Now they wake surf, but I didn't know how to wakeboard. So I don't know how to drive a boat. I'm from Milwaukee. So I hired a guy to drive the boat and teach him how to wakeboard. And so I would go out with them and I would drink beer and eat a sandwich and kind of watch him and participate and have fun. We so, would shred. Yeah. And so, but for me, it wasn't stressful, right? If I was doing it, I'd be driving the boat, hoping I'm not killing someone, running them over trying to teach him how to wakeboard, which I didn't know how to do. So by hiring people, it took the stress out of it. And mm-hmm. so the whole idea in Montana was to make basically Hunter and Will mountain men. And so they were wakeboarding. We'd go into Bob Marshall with guides and, you know, we'd fly into a ranger station and float out, you know, in rafts and fish and camp. And we had people doing everything. But they would want to do it, which is great. So they learned how to do it, and I didn't want to learn it. So it was great to have the people do it. And, then, and, and we were like 8 to 12 years old, yeah. basically, in like that time frame. Yeah, Right. So by the time they're 12, they're living in San Francisco, that they were able to tie their own flies and go fly fishing, and they were like real mountain men because they spent their summers in Montana. And so the whole idea was not just to do this for Hunter and Will, but to do it for every family. So as we talked about earlier, going to vacations are stressful, right? Because you got to get the right room and all that crap. So the other thing is, what do you do on vacation, right? You got to then figure out, you know, where to go fishing, where to, you know, what to do. And so what we started at Iron Horse, which is a big pillar of discovery, is we take care of all that. You just show up And we have it all orchestrated for you, whether it's fly fishing or rock climbing or mountain biking or wakeboarding or, you know, whatever you, fly fishing, you know, whatever, whitewater rafting, glacier national tours, you know, whatever you do in Montana, we made it easy for you. And so if you were, let's say you were the, the wife and you were making the plans, well, you didn't have to make plans. All you had to do is show up the Iron Horse, and it was all orchestrated for you. Yeah, And then we did Kukio right after that, which is on the big island, and we turned them into watermen. So, you know, Hunter and Will were the first kids in the neighborhood, you know, who could surf and scuba dive and free dive and stand up paddle and... Rock run. Rock run and, you know, hand line up 170-pound tuna, yellowfin tuna. So, you know, the whole idea was to turn them into mountain men in Hawaii, turn them into watermen in Kukio. And so... Yeah, use the activities of each environment around, provide it to the families, give them more to do. Like when we were talking to Ali, a troubadour, right? She's saying how like every day she can do a different activity with one kid for the entire summer. Yeah, so just going to the pool and suntanning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's kind of how the conception of the comfort stations came around too, was with Will and Hunter, right? Yeah. So I did um, Estancia. I wanted them to learn how to golf because I didn't know how to golf. And I figured <laughs> if you started early, they, you know, they'd have more fun. And so I remember they were like on the driving range at Estancia and they were just throwing golf balls. And I'm like, hit the <laughs> golf ball. And like, you know, like getting mad. And my buddy who was teaching them, Doc Bellis, is like, no, Mike, let, look, they're five years old. They're seven years old. Just make the golf course fun for them. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, they're not going to be 
Jack Nicholas right now at seven. Right. So I go, okay, good idea. So I go, let's go golf. So we go to the pro shop and I was trying to put them in collared shirts and they're like, I don't want to wear a collared shirt. And I'm like, put the collared shirt on. They're like, we had to wear them in school, yeah, at like, private school. Yeah, so we're like, we're not at school though. Yeah, we're not wearing it. And I go, you know, so I'm fighting with them. I go, well, why am I fighting with them? This is supposed to be fun. So I go, okay, don't wear a collared shirt. So we go to the first team, the pro goes, Mr. Melvin, you know, you guys need collared shirts. And I go, why? And they go, yes, sir, Mr. Melvin. <laughs> and I go, oh, this is great. I can make my own rules up. <laughs> so that's how, like, our courses became casual. Yeah. Right? It was kind of all organic. It wasn't like trying to disrupt golf because I didn't know enough about golf yeah. to be disruptive. But it was just how we lived. And that's kind of how everything happened. And then I would put on the tea boxes a cooler. And it had Cokes and Sprites and candy bars. And so, like, Hunter and Will would go to the first tea, eat a candy bar, drink a Coke, run down the fairway to the next tea, get another Coke and candy bar. So I was making the golf course fun, and now that's turned into the comfort stations. Mm. Not a great parenting technique, but a great way to enjoy the golf, you know, enjoy yeah. the golf course. Yeah, now we got like grills and dried fruit and, you know, different alcohols. And I mean, I mean, it's crazy what they've transformed into. Each club competes with the other club to have like the most fun, interesting comfort station. Yeah. And it's a huge part of the golf course is not going out there in the middle of the desert and being thirsty and hungry the entire time. But actually, yeah. Yeah. They call it the five pound round because I mean, you have to really be disciplined not to, you know, yeah, have the burgers, have the hot dogs, You're, make yourself, a, you yeah. know, Sunday. Gaining five pounds every round. Yeah. Okay. That's funny. You know, I, I mean, I probably wouldn't have even golfed if I didn't go to uh, El Dorado with Will, you know, at some point, you know, we were, we golfed a, a whole round in board shorts. Yep. And I remember it being a hot day too. And it was, so, it was so much fun, but those comfort stations too, just, you're like, wait, I just happen to be thirsty right on this hole. And there happens to be a comfort station right here. And this is working out just perfect. Frozen margarita, yep. Cosmigos. Yep, yep. So, I mean, that was my introduction into golf. And it was a, what did I do on that that par five? What was it? Brock Birdie <laughs> to par five. First time golfing. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, golf's intimidating, right? And yeah. golf yeah. clubs are intimidating because they have rules and dress codes, which is great. I mean, I'm now, since I love golf, I also love the traditional golf, which I didn't understand, obviously, when I, when I started so I love like going to the old school courses and dress proper, you know, Chicago dress Golf Club we did. Chicago Golf Club, uh, Augusta, Shinnecock. Shinnecock. Shinnecock at least you could wear shorts. But you know, you you know, you like having your golf outfit and you know, mm -hmm. dressing up and following the rules and going through the traditional stuff. Yeah. So, you know, now yeah. when you golf, you like that. But when I didn't golf, I didn't understand that. And what I think we do because of like you going out on your board shorts, I think we get, and we're not intimidating like a, you know, old classic traditional club. So I think it's really good to introduce people to golf yeah. and, and grow the game. So yeah. I think, you know, we blast rock and roll on the driving range. And that comes from, I used to go to this place when I was at Stanford called Nepenthe, which is in Big, Big Surfer, like burgers and beer. 
and you'd sit out there and look over, you know, the, the forests and the trees, and they're blasting rock and roll. So that's cool. like simple the idea. formula. Yeah, yeah, you go, yeah. Well, it works at the Panthe. It should yeah. work out here. It's, Hell yeah. yeah. And that was definitely my takeaway from it too, was it got me introduced to golf at a later uh, point in my life, in my early 20s, and made me want to get good enough to go play at these other places that are more formal and more exclusive to get into. And I don't want to go make a fool of myself, right? But but would still enjoy just as much getting done up. Oh, dude, you got a great swing. You just need yeah. clubs that are longer. Yeah, which we got we got ordered on the way. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. But just not knowing how to dress at those places. Yeah, exactly. Th- that's intimidating. So, speaking of family and grandfathers, my older brother Hunter had a beautiful child. Your grandfather now yes. officially. How does that feel? Well, everyone asks me that, and I always say, "Well, I kind of feel like I have been for nine years with Max." Right, but um, it's not. It feels good to be a grandfather. It, I, there's nothing, you know, I don't feel weird or old or anything like that about it. The, but the weird thing is not that I'm a grandfather, is that Hunter's a father. Right, right. <laughs> That's yeah. more the weird thing to me. I mean, he's he's doing such a good job. He's, he's, a, great, he's a great father. Owen is a great mom. He's a great kid. Tucker, yeah. I mean, it's as chill as it comes, and they're yeah. chill, so it's... You know, obviously fun, you know, fun to see. Hell yeah. Well, congratulations on it. Well, congratulations to you. Absolutely. Uncle Will, Uncle Max. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, I have one, if if you want to answer. Uh, if you could leave your sons with any advice, what would it be? Well, it's funny because I told Hunter this. I was on um, actually a podcast with Bob Pittman from iHeart. And he asked me, what would you, you know, tell your 21 year old self? Which I go, no one asked me that. And I actually, you know, didn't have just an immediate response. And I said, I'd probably tell him patience. Cause when you're young, you know, you want everything just to happen so quick, like, you know, but nothing ever happens quick, right? it takes time and you have to, you do have to be patient. So patience is probably, you know, my best advice to people, especially young people. And I remember like right after I did that podcast, Hunter called me and goes, you know, dad, I want to do this. I want to do that. And Hunter's worked, you know, for discovery for a long time. He got a master's in sustainability and environmental planning, which is super good for discovering, you know, what he does, what he does for us. But he's on this big project in Florida called Atlantic Fields. And it's about to start. And I'm like, Hunter, you just got to be patient. You got to see this project from the start to finish because you're in through the entitlement phase, which went well, and then it didn't go well. And now it's about to go well again. And we're building and we're selling. I go, just this thing's going to happen quick, quick and meaning five years, which for him isn't quick. (laughs) But, you know, I just say patience, watch it happen. And by the time you're done with this, you know, between everything you've learned and you know, you're going to be able to run this company. Mm. So just be patient. And it hit home with him, actually. That's cool. I love that. Because young people aren't, you know, aren't patient. And, you know, they... 
everyone wants immediate gratification and, um, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. Yeah, it's really good advice. Absolutely. Like I feel I've been lucky because it happened. I mean, it wasn't immediate gratification, <laughs> but it, everything happened quickly and good for me and just kept growing, growing, growing and getting, getting better. But if you think about it, like I did my first project when I was 34 years old mm. and, you know, big project like this. And that's, yeah. you know, basically Hunter's age right now. Wow. Yeah. Two years older than me. Yeah. Fucking A. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That's pretty cool. It all started from the drive to buy a bike by being a courtesy clerk at Lucky's. Courtesy clerk. <laughs> right? I don't know. Absolutely. And that's like. That's the clip right there. Hell yeah. You've worked your ass off on a bunch of different jobs and like it's crazy how the universe is kind of taking oh. you in different directions. But Well, the thing I did though, <clears throat> I created my job around basically being with my family. Because all this stuff outside of the golf I did was to basically be with Hunter and Will. Mm. So, you know, I've been yeah. lucky because they've been obviously a part of it through, you know, since the beginning. And that's a testament to discovery too, because you go to places like Troubadour where there's 80% plus the, the residents there are full time, you know, and there's so much stuff to do. Like Will was saying, uh, with your family there, with the kids, uh, and just enjoying the space all around. But that's when I love hearing those stories, you know, about uh, the comfort stations, about the amenities, about all the stuff. Like you essentially tested it with them so that you could have that time together and they could also learn awesome skill sets um, maybe that you didn't know or didn't no, get I mean, to learn. Like Hunter and Will, when they were, well, still, I mean, they're, yeah. you know, as good in the water and in the mountains as any, you know, anyone. Oh, yeah. And then you share that with other families, right? It's, it's like the other thing, I mean, I really did want to cover this, um, how the staff at Discovery becomes part of your family. Yeah, well, that's one of the keys. So everyone's like, how do you create such you know, great service? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe the service really isn't that great, even though we try to make it great and I actually think it's great. But what makes it great is the intimacy of the service because like the guy who treat who taught Will how to wakeboard up until a couple of years ago still worked for us in Cabo. So, you know, you've had the same people around raise, you know, helping families raise their their kids in the outdoors or in the water or like T Bear who we spoke about who, you know, was at Kukio, is still at Kukio. Travis Chamberlain, when he was 17 years old, he was parking cars at Kikio, and now he's crushing it, doing sales at McKenna with his family. Yeah, Peter Whalen, parking cars at Mirabelle, now runs all the clubs on the East Coast. So, you know, we've homegrown not only my kids, but also staff who, you know, has discovery in their DNA because they've never worked for anyone else. So that helps create such a, you know, such a great level of service and that they try so hard, but they know the people. So like the people who work at Madison, the people who work at McKenna, the people who work at Gazer, they know Hunter and Will since they were kids. Yeah. They, Max grown up at Gazer. You know, so and and Max will out. have that same experience. Yeah, but it's not just for my kids, it's for every 
family in the community. And that was, you know, basically what happened. I wanted to share the things I wanted to do with my family for other families. And that was kind of the, you know, the secret soft or the soft, the software, because anyone can mm-hmm. build buildings. You just hire contractors and architects and yeah. engineers, but to create the energy and the life in the buildings and in the community is I think what we do. We activate these things better than any anyone ever. And I think that's what really drove the success and actually Casamigos success same way. It was, it wasn't a manufactured thing. It was something that was in George and Randy and my DNA and how we, and how we lived. And we shared that with basically the rest of the world now. Absolutely. That's about as cool as it gets. Father, I love you very much. This was a very cool episode. I really enjoyed this. We're at Madison Club. Tommy and I have two more rounds of golf to play. Brock and Spencer came out here. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming on. Well, well, I love you like a son. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Brock, thank you. Yeah, of course, man. Yeah, yeah. I just am going to nominate myself as the honorary fourth son. So. Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, well, you, Ricky, Jordan, exactly, JT, yeah. you got a There's long like tw- list. 24 sons. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you for watching Studio 22. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And follow our socials at Studio 22 Podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.